Section 2 of Hard Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stuart Wills. Hard Times by Charles Dickens. Section 2. Book 1. Chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4. Mr. Bounderby. Not being Mrs. Grundy, who was Mr. Bounderby? Why, Mr. Bounderby was as near to being Mr. Gradgrind's bosom friend as a man perfectly devoid of sentiment can approach that spiritual relationship towards another man perfectly devoid of sentiment. So near was Mr. Bounderby, or, if the reader should prefer it, so far off. He was a rich man, banker, merchant, manufacturer, and what not, a big, loud man with a stare and a metallic laugh, a man made out of a coarse material, which seemed to have been stretched to make so much of him, a man with a great puffed head and forehead, swelled veins in his temples, and such a strained skin to his face that it seemed to hold his eyes open and lift his eyebrows up a man with a pervading appearance on him of being inflated like a balloon and ready to start, a man who could never sufficiently vaunt himself a self-made man, a man who was always proclaiming through that brassy speaking-trumpet voice of his, his old ignorance and his old poverty, a man who was the bully of humility. A year or two younger than his eminently practical friend, Mr. Bounderby looked older, his seven or eight and forty might have had the seven or eight added to it again without surprising anybody. He had not much hair. One might have fancied he had talked it off, and that what was left all standing up in disorder was in that condition from being constantly blown about by his windy boastfulness. In the formal drawing-room of Stone Lodge, standing on the hearth-rug, warming himself before the fire, Mr. Bounderby delivered some observations to Mrs. Gradgrind on the circumstance of its being his birthday. He stood before the fire, partly because it was a cool spring afternoon, though the sun shone, partly because the shade of Stone Lodge was always haunted by the ghost of damp mortar, partly because he thus took up a commanding position from which to subdue Mrs. Gradgrind. I hadn't a shoe on my foot. As to a stocking, I didn't know such a thing by name. I passed the day in a ditch, and the night in a pigsty. That's the way I spent my tenth birthday. Not that a ditch was new to me, for I was born in a ditch. Mrs. Gradgrind, a little thin, white, pink-eyed bundle of shawls, of surpassing feebleness, mental and bodily, who was always taking physic without any effect, and who, whenever she showed a symptom of coming to life, was invariably stunned by some weighty piece of fact tumbling on her, Mrs. Gradgrind hoped it was a dry ditch. "'No! Wet as a sop! A foot of water in it!' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Enough to give a baby cold.' Mrs. Gradgrind considered. Cold? I was born with inflammation of the lungs, and of everything else I believe that was capable of inflammation, returned Mr. Bounderby. For years, madam, I was one of the most miserable little wretches ever seen. 
I was so sickly that I was always moaning and groaning. I was so ragged and dirty that you wouldn't have touched me with a pair of tongs. Mrs. Gradgrind faintly looked at the tongs as the most appropriate thing her imbecility could think of doing. How I fought through it I don't know, said Bounderby. I was determined, I suppose. I have been a determined character in later life, and I suppose I was then. Here I am, Mrs. Gradgrind, anyhow, and nobody to thank for being here but myself. Mrs. Gradgrind meekly and weakly hoped that his mother— "'My mother bolted, ma'am,' said Bounderby. Mrs. Gradgrind, stunned as usual, collapsed, and gave it up. "'My mother left me to my grandmother,' said Bounderby. "'And according to the best of my remembrance, "'my grandmother was the wickedest and worst old woman that ever lived. "'If I got a little pair of shoes by any chance, "'she would take them off and sell them for drink.' Why, I have known that grandmother of mine lie in her bed and drink her fourteen glasses of liquor before breakfast. Mrs. Gradgrind, weakly smiling, and giving no other sign of vitality, looked, as she always did, like an indifferently executed transparency of a small female figure, without enough light behind it. She kept a chandler's shop, pursued Bounderby, and kept me in an egg-box. That was the cot of my infancy, an old egg-box. As soon as I was big enough to run away, of course I ran away. Then I became a young vagabond, and instead of one old woman knocking me about and starving me, everybody of all ages knocked me about and starved me. They were right. They had no business to do anything else. I was a nuisance, an encumbrance, and a pest. I know that very well." His pride in having, at any time of his life, achieved such a great social distinction as to be a nuisance, an encumbrance, and a pest, was only to be satisfied by three sonorous repetitions of the boast. "'I was to pull through it, I suppose, Mrs. Gradgrind. Whether I was to do it or not, ma'am, I did it. I pulled through it, though nobody threw me out a rope. Vagabond, errand-boy, vagabond, laborer, Porter, clerk, chief manager, small partner, Josiah Bounderby of Coketown. Those are the antecedents and the culmination. Josiah Bounderby of Coketown learnt his letters from the outsides of shops, Mrs. Gradgrind, and was first able to tell the time upon a dial-plate from studying the steeple-clock of St. Giles Church, London, under the direction of a drunken cripple, who was a convicted thief and an incorrigible vagrant. Tell Josiah Bounderby of Cooktown, of your district schools and your model schools and your training schools, and your whole kettle of fish schools, and Josiah Bounderby of Cooktown tells you plainly, all right, all correct, he hadn't such advantages, but let us have hard-headed, solid-fisted people. The education that made him won't do for everybody, he knows well. Such and such his education was, however, and you may force him to swallow boiling fat, but you shall never force him to suppress the facts of his life. Being heated when he arrived at this climax, Josiah Bounderby of Coketown stopped. He stopped just as his eminently practical friend, still accompanied by the two young culprits, entered the room, 
His eminently practical friend, on seeing him, stopped also and gave Louisa a reproachful look that plainly said, Behold your Bounderby. Well, blustered Mr. Bounderby, what's the matter? What is young Thomas in the dumps about? He spoke of young Thomas, but he looked at Louisa. We were peeping at the circus, muttered Louisa haughtily without lifting up her eyes, and father caught us. And, Mrs. Gradgrind, said her husband in a lofty manner, I should as soon have expected to find my children reading poetry. Dear me, whimpered Mrs. Gradgrind, how can you, Louisa and Thomas? I wonder at you. I declare you're enough to make one regret ever having had a family at all. I have a great mind to say I wish I hadn't. Then what would you have done, I should like to know? Mr. Gradgrind did not seem favorably impressed by these cogent remarks. He frowned impatiently. "'As if, with my head in its present throbbing state, you couldn't go and look at the shells and minerals and things provided for you, instead of circuses,' said Mrs. Gradgrind. "'You know as well as I do. No young people have circus masters, or keep circuses in cabinets, or attend lectures about circuses.' What can you possibly want to know of circuses, then? I am sure you have enough to do, if that's what you want. With my head in its present state, I couldn't remember the mere names of half the facts you have got to attend to. That's the reason, pouted Louisa. Don't tell me the reason, because it can't be nothing of the sort, said Mrs. Gradgrind. Go and be something illogical directly. Mrs. Gradgrind was not a scientific character, and usually dismissed her children to their studies with this general injunction to choose their pursuit. In truth, Mrs. Gradgrind's stock of facts, in general, was woefully defective, but Mr. Gradgrind, in raising her to her high matrimonial position, had been influenced by two reasons. Firstly, she was most satisfactory as a question of figures, and secondly, she had no nonsense about her. By nonsense he meant fancy, and truly it is probable she was as free from any alloy of that nature as any human being not arrived at the perfection of an absolute idiot ever was. The simple circumstance of being left alone with her husband and Mr. Bounderby was sufficient to stun this admirable lady again without collision between herself and any other fact. So she once more died away, and nobody minded her. "'Bounderby,' said Mr. Grandgrind, drawing a chair to the fireside, "'you are always so interested in my young people, particularly in Louisa.' that I make no apology for saying to you, I am very much vexed by this discovery. I have systematically devoted myself, as you know, to the education of the reason of my family. The reason is, as you know, the only faculty to which the education should be addressed. And yet, Bounderby, it would appear from this unexpected circumstance of today, though in itself a trifling one, as if something had crept into Thomas's and Louise's minds, which is, or rather which is not, I do not know that I can express myself better than by saying, which has never been intended to be developed, and in which their reason has no part. There certainly is no reason in looking with interest at a parcel of vagabonds, returned Bounderby. When I was a vagabond myself, 
Nobody looked with any interest at me, I know that. Then comes the question, said the eminently practical father, with his eyes on the fire, in what has this vulgar curiosity its rise? I'll tell you in what, in idle imagination. I hope not, said the eminently practical. I confess, however, that the misgiving has crossed me on my way home. In idle imagination, Gradgrind, repeated Bounderby, a very bad thing for anybody, but a cursed bad thing for a girl like Louisa. I should ask Mrs. Gradgrind's pardon for strong expressions, but that she knows very well I am not a refined character. Whoever expects refinement in me will be disappointed. I hadn't a refined bringing up. Whether, said Gradgrind, pondering with his hands in his pockets and his cavernous eyes on the fire, whether any instructor or servant can have suggested anything, whether Louisa or Thomas can have been reading anything, whether, in spite of all precautions, any idle story-book can have got into the house, because in minds that have been practically formed by rule and line from the cradle upwards, this is so curious so incomprehensible. "'Stop a bit!' cried Bounderby, who all this time had been standing, as before, on the hearth, bursting at the very furniture of the room with explosive humility. "'You have one of those strollers' children in the school!' Cecilia Jupe, by name, said Mr. Gradgrind, with something of a stricken look at his friend. "'Now stop a bit!' cried Bounderby again. "'How did she come there?' "'Why, the fact is, I saw the girl myself, for the first time, only just now. She specially applied here at the house to be admitted, as not regularly belonging to our town. And—' "'Yes, you are right, Bounderby. You are right.' "'Now stop a bit,' cried Bounderby once more. "'Louisa saw her when she came.' "'Louisa certainly did see her, for she mentioned the application to me.' but Louisa saw her, I have no doubt, in Mrs. Gradgrind's presence. "'Pray, Mrs. Gradgrind,' said Bounderby, "'what passed?' "'Oh, my poor health,' returned Mrs. Gradgrind. "'The girl wanted to come to the school, and Mr. Gradgrind wanted girls to come to the school, and Louisa and Thomas both said that the girl wanted to come, and that Mr. Gradgrind wanted girls to come.' and how was it possible to contradict them when such was the fact? "'Now I tell you what, Gradgrind,' said Mr. Bounderby, "'turn this girl to the right about, and there's an end of it.' "'I am much of your opinion.' "'Do it at once,' said Bounderby. "'Has always been my motto from a child. When I thought I would run away from my egg-box and my grandmother, I did it at once. Do you the same. Do this at once.' "'Are you walking?' asked his friend. I have the father's address. Perhaps he would not mind walking to town with me. Not the least in the world, said Mr. Bounderby, as long as you do it at once. So Mr. Bounderby threw on his hat. He always threw it on, as expressing a man who had been far too busily employed in making himself to acquire any fashion of wearing his hat, and with his hands in his pockets, sauntered out into the hall. "'I never wear gloves,' it was his custom to say. "'I didn't climb up the ladder in them. "'Shouldn't be so high up if I had.' Being left to saunter in the hall a minute or two, while Mr. Gradgrind went upstairs for the address, 
He opened the door of the children's study and looked into that serene floor-clothed apartment, which, notwithstanding its bookcases and its cabinets and its variety of learned and philosophical appliances, had much of the genial aspect of a room devoted to hair-cutting. Louisa languidly leaned upon the window looking out, without looking at anything, while young Thomas stood sniffing revengefully at the fire. Adam Smith and Malthus, two younger gradgrinds, were out at lecture in custody, and little Jane, after manufacturing a good deal of moist pipe-clay on her face with slate-pencil and tears, had fallen asleep over vulgar fractions. "'It's all right now, Louisa. It's all right, young Thomas,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'You won't do so any more. I'll answer for its being all over with father. Well, Louisa, that's worth a kiss, isn't it?' "'You can take one, Mr. Bounderby,' returned Louisa, when she had coldly paused and slowly walked across the room, and ungraciously raised her cheek towards him, with her face turned away. "'Always my pet, ain't you, Louisa?' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Good-bye, Louisa!' He went his way, but she stood on the same spot, rubbing the cheek he had kissed with her handkerchief until it was burning red. She was doing this five minutes afterwards. "'What are you about, Lou?' her brother sulkily remonstrated. "'You'll rub a hole in your face.' "'You may cut the piece out with your penknife if you like, Tom. I wouldn't cry.' Chapter 5 The Keynote Coketown, to which Messrs. Bounderby and Gradgrind now walked, was a triumph of fact— it had no greater taint of fancy in it than Mrs. Gradgrind herself. Let us strike the keynote, Coketown, before pursuing our tune. It was a town of red brick, or of brick that would have been red if the smoke and ashes had allowed it, but as matters stood, it was a town of unnatural red and black, like the painted face of a savage. It was a town of machinery and tall chimneys, out of which interminable serpents of smoke trailed themselves forever and ever, and never got uncoiled. It had a black canal in it, and a river that ran purple with ill-smelling dye, and vast piles of building full of windows, where there was a rattling and a trembling all day long, and where the piston of the steam-engine worked monotonously up and down, like the head of an elephant in a state of melancholy madness. It contained several large streets, all very like one another, and many small streets, still more like one another, inhabited by people equally like one another, who all went in and out at the same hours, with the same sound upon the same pavements, to do the same work, and to whom every day was the same as yesterday and tomorrow, and every year the counterpart of the last and the next. These attributes of Coketown were in the main inseparable from the work by which it was sustained. Against them were to be set off comforts of life which found their way all over the world, and elegancies of life which made, we will not ask how much of the fine lady, who could scarcely bear to hear the place mentioned. The rest of its features were voluntary, and they were these. You saw nothing in Coketown but what was severely workful. If the members of a religious persuasion built a chapel there, as the members of eighteen religious persuasions had done, 
they made it a pious warehouse of red brick, with sometimes, but this is only in highly ornamental examples, a bell in a birdcage on the top of it. The solitary exception was the new church, a stuccoed edifice with a square steeple over the door, terminating in four short pinnacles like florid wooden legs. All the public inscriptions in the town were painted alike, in severe characters of black and white. The jail might have been the infirmary, the infirmary might have been the jail, the town hall might have been either or both or anything else, for anything that appeared to the contrary in the graces of their construction. Fact, 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 everywhere in the material aspect of the town. Fact, 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 everywhere in the immaterial. The Machokumchild school was all fact, and the school of design was all fact, and the relations between master and man were all fact, and everything was fact between the lying-in hospital and the cemetery, and what you couldn't state in figures or show to be purchasable in the cheapest market and saleable in the dearest was not, and never should be, world without end, amen. A town so sacred to fact and so triumphant in its assertion, of course got on well. Why, no, not quite well. No, dear me. No. Coketown did not come out of its own furnaces in all respects like gold that had stood the fire. First, the perplexing mystery of the place was, who belonged to the eighteen denominations? Because whoever did, the laboring people did not. It was very strange to walk through the streets on a Sunday morning, and note how few of them the barbarous jangling of bells that was driving the sick and nervous mad called away from their own quarter, from their own close rooms, from the corners of their own streets, where they lounged listlessly, gazing at all the church and chapel going, as at a thing with which they had no manner of concern. Nor was it merely the stranger who noticed this because there was a native organization in Coketown itself, whose members were to be heard of in the House of Commons every session, indignantly petitioning for acts of Parliament that should make these people religious by main force. Then came the Teetotal Society, who complained that these same people would get drunk, and showed in tabular statements that they did get drunk, and proved at tea-parties that no inducement, human or divine, except a medal, would induce them to forego their custom of getting drunk. Then came the chemist and druggist with other tabular statements, showing that when they didn't get drunk they took opium. Then came the experienced chaplain of the jail, with more tabular statements, outdoing all the previous tabular statements, and showing that the same people would resort to low haunts hidden from the public eye, where they heard low singing and saw low dancing, and mayhap joined in it, and where A. B., aged twenty-four next birthday, and committed for eighteen months solitary, had himself said, not that he had ever shown himself particularly worthy of belief, his ruin began, as he was perfectly sure and confident that otherwise he would have been a tip-top moral specimen. Then came Mr. Gradgrind and Mr. Bounderby, the two gentlemen at this present moment walking through Coketown, and both eminently practical, who could on occasion furnish more tabular statements derived from their own personal experience, and illustrated by cases they had known and seen, 
from which it clearly appeared, in short, it was the only clear thing in the case, that these same people were a bad lot altogether, gentlemen, that do what you would for them, they were never thankful for it, gentlemen, that they were restless gentlemen, that they never knew what they wanted, that they lived upon the best, and bought fresh butter, and insisted on mocha coffee, and rejected all but prime parts of meat, and yet were eternally dissatisfied and unmanageable. In short, it was the moral of the old nursery fable. There was an old woman, and what do you think? She lived upon nothing but victuals and drink. Victuals and drink were the whole of her diet, and yet this old woman would never be quiet. Is it possible, I wonder, that there was any analogy between the case of the Coketown population and the case of the little Gradgrinds? Surely none of us in our sober senses and acquainted with figures are to be told at this time of day that one of the foremost elements in the existence of the Coketown working people had been for scores of years deliberately set at naught, that there was any fancy in them demanding to be brought into healthy existence instead of struggling on in convulsions, that exactly in the ratio as they worked long and monotonously the craving grew within them for some physical relief, some relaxation, encouraging good humor and good spirits, and giving them a vent, some recognized holiday, though it were but for an honest dance to a stirring band of music, some occasional light pie in which even Machokumchild had no finger, which craving must and would be satisfied aright, or must and would inevitably go wrong, until the laws of creation were repealed. This man lives at Pod's End, and I don't quite know Pod's End, said Mr. Gradgrind. Which is it, Bounderby? Mr. Bounderby knew it was somewhere downtown, but knew no more respecting it. And so they stopped for a moment, looking about. Almost as they did so, there came running around the corner of the street, at a quick pace and with a frightened look, a girl whom Mr. Gradgrind recognized. Hello, said he. Stop. Where are you going? Stop. Girl number twenty stopped then, palpitating, and made him a curtsy. "'Why are you tearing about the streets?' said Mr. Gradgrind, in this improper manner. "'I was—I was run after, sir,' the girl panted, "'and I wanted to get away.' "'Run after?' repeated Mr. Gradgrind. "'Who would run after you?' The question was unexpectedly and suddenly answered for her by the colourless boy, Bitzer, who came round the corner with such blind speed and so little anticipating a stoppage on the pavement that he brought himself up against Mr. Gradgrind's waistcoat and rebounded into the road. "'What do you mean, boy?' said Mr. Gradgrind. "'What are you doing? How dare you dash against everybody in this manner?' Bitzer picked up his cap, which the concussion had knocked off, and backing and knuckling his forehead, pleaded that it was an accident. "'Was this boy running after you, Jupe?' asked Mr. Gradgrind. "'Yes, sir,' said the girl reluctantly. "'No, I wasn't, sir,' cried Bitzer. "'Not till she run away from me. But the horse-riders never mind what they say, sir. They're famous for it. You know the horse-riders are famous for never minding what they say,' addressing Sissy. "'It's as well known in the town as—' "'Please, sir, as the multiplication table isn't known to the horse-riders.' Bitzer tried Mr. Bounderby with this. 
"'He frightens me so,' said the girl, "'with his cruel faces.' "'Oh!' cried Bitzer. "'Oh! Ain't you one of the rest? Ain't you a horse-rider? I never looked at her, sir. I asked her if she would know how to define a horse to-morrow, and offered to tell her again, and she ran away. And I ran after her, sir, that she might know how to answer when she was asked. You wouldn't have thought of saying such mischief if you hadn't been a horse-rider.' "'Her calling seems to be pretty well known among them, observed Mr. Bounderby. "'You'd have had the whole school peeping in a row in a week.' "'Truly, I think so,' returned his friend. "'Bitzer, turn you about and take yourself home. "'Jupe, stay here a moment. "'Let me hear of your running in this manner any more, boy, "'and you will hear of me through the master of the school. "'You understand what I mean. "'Go along.' The boy stopped in his rapid blinking, knuckled his forehead again, glanced at Sissy, turned about, and retreated. "'Now, girl,' said Mr. Gradgrind, "'take this gentleman and me to your father's. We are going there. What have you got in that bottle you're carrying?' "'Gin,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Dear, no, sir. It's the nine oils.' "'The what?' cried Mr. Bounderby. "'The nine oils, sir.' to rub father with then said mr bounderby with a short loud laugh what in the devil do you rub your father with nine oils for it's what our people always use sir when they get any hurts in the ring replied the girl looking over her shoulder to assure herself that her pursuer was gone they bruise themselves very bad sometimes serves em right said mr bounderby for being idle she glanced up at his face with mingled astonishment and dread. "'By George!' said Mr. Bounderby. "'When I was four or five years younger than you, I had worse bruises upon me than ten oils, twenty oils, forty oils would have rubbed off. I didn't get em by posture-making, but by being banged about. There was no rope-dancing for me. I danced on the bare ground and was larupped with the rope.' Mr. Gradgrind, though hard enough, was by no means so rough a man as Mr. Bounderby. His character was not unkind, all things considered. It might have been a very kind one, indeed, if he had only made some round mistake in the arithmetic that balanced it years ago. He said, in what he meant for a reassuring tone, as they turned down a narrow road, "'And this is Pod's End, is it, Jupe?' "'This it is, sir, and if you wouldn't mind, sir, this is the house she stopped at twilight at the door of a mean little public-house with dim red lights in it as haggard and as shabby as if for want of custom it had itself taken to drinking and had gone the way all drunkards go and was very near the end of it it's only crossing the bar sir and up the stairs if you wouldn't mind and waiting there for a moment till i get a candle if you should hear a dog sir it's only merry legs and he only barks. Merry legs and nine oils, eh? said Mr. Bounderby, entering last with his metallic laugh. Pretty well this for a self-made man. End of section two.